I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our podcast today. We are heading into Palm Sunday, and we have a really, really big chunk of text to look at, and Alan's going to make it even bigger for (laughs) y'all. So uh, we're going to be looking today at Matthew chapter 26, verse 14 through chapter 27, verse 66. So our gospel lesson this week follows what is really a long tradition of reading the whole Passion narrative on Palm Passion Sunday. I'm going to try to honor that tradition by giving an overview of this text rather than digging into the details as I normally do. And I hope this will be instructive for our listeners as they select which portions of the story to focus on during Holy Week or if they decide to try mm. to, to deal with the whole passage. I mean, yeah. some churches do that, and that's an option. So obviously there's passion narratives in all the Gospels. And mm. so what makes this one unique? Well, I mean, I think one of the things we're beginning to see is that each of the gospel writers has their own uh, perspective. And, you know, one of the things we're going to see about Matthew's passion narrative is although Matthew's narrative does agree a great deal with Mark's. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of very parallel material and even word-for-word stuff. But Matthew has shaped his version in some important ways that correspond to his unique perspectives and themes about Jesus, some of which we've already seen Mm -hmm. as we've been working our way Mm -hmm. through Matthew. So for example, Matthew portrays Jesus as the son of God whose actions are determined by his commitment to fulfill all righteousness. Mm -hmm. We've seen that already, right? In connection with the, with the uh, baptism and the, and the temptation narrative. And in this respect, one of the things we need to note is that his identity has not been hidden in Matthew's gospel, you know, unlike as in Mark's gospel, Uh, but rather his identity has been open, openly proclaimed from the very first verse of the gospel, right? It's the good Mm -hmm. news of Jesus. Jesus, the Messiah, the son of mm-hmm. David, and the son of Abraham, right? Mm-hmm. So um, we're, we're going to see connections as well between Matthew's passion narrative and the infancy narrative, as well as the story of Jesus' mm-hmm. ministry generally. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then, um, how does this like really begin? Well, Matthew's, Matthew's passion narrative begins a little bit before um, the lectionary passage, uh, it begins at the beginning of chapter 26, mm-hmm. and there's sort of an additional passion prediction that's unique to Matthew's gospel. Uh, Jesus says, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified mm-hmm. in Matthew 26, 2. And it, it's interesting to note, I think, here that instead of saying he must be rejected and suffer at the hands of the Jewish leaders, he says the Son of Man will be handed over. Mm-hmm. And, and it's the verb paradidomi, which also is translated betray in this section. Mm, so we need to mm-hmm, note that. Mm-hmm. So the Son of Man will be handed over. And so it, it implies, it sort of has this implication that Jesus has some agency here and that he is choosing this path, not his enemies right, in the Jewish leadership. Right, right, which I, I really like. I think that fits into the broader context of God's purpose, that, mm-hmm. that, that Jesus mm-hmm. is indeed... Um, following the path that God set out for him, yeah. and um, to me, it's a it, it gives more credence to God's plan to do this work in the sure. world as opposed to kind of a, a fight against a tragic, evil, right? A tragic event or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. Now, this this passage also links the death of Jesus as the one who will save his people from their sins. You know, Jesus is defined in terms of he will save his people from their sins in Matthew one twenty one, And it links the death of Jesus with the Passover, which is the Jewish festival of national salvation, right? Mm-hmm, and, right. and it's telling for, uh, I think, that, that Matthew tells us the, the meeting of the Jewish leaders at the house of Caiaphas to plot Jesus' death. That at that meeting, they decided that it should not take place during the festival for fear of a riot. Mm -hmm. But of course, that's not what actually takes place because these events really aren't theirs to determine. (laughs) Right. I'm going to head back just a minute here to this this um, Passover, this Jewish feast of nas- national salvation, I, I think this is often kind of um, glossed over. Mm-hmm. I think this is a little bit more, 
it has more emphasis than maybe maybe I've ever heard it get, given. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, I mean, it's the festival that that uh, that that remember recalls right. their deliverance from slavery in Egypt at the Exodus, right? right it's their right, national right. and the right. formation of them as a people, right, really, in right. a sense. But but the language you're using there, mm-hmm. I think, is. I mean, I know we've made big deals of the Passover before, but the, but the way you just articulated it, I think, really puts a new emphasis on salvation as a whole when well, Jesus then becomes... That's right. Exactly. That's which, the irony there, is that yeah. Jesus, the one who's going to save them, is 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 you know is going to meet his de- his his fate he's going to meet this uh, he's going to fulfill god's purpose um during this festival of salvation yeah yeah mm-hmm. and it's wow that's that's really cool yeah. okay moving on then the into the actual the the proper reading is yes. it's, is it's so the reading defined. proper begins in 26:14 with Judas agreeing to betray and again it's mm-hmm. paradidomi jesus to the jewish leaders um, now, because the only previous reference to Judas was in a list of the apostles, and there he simply identified as the one who would betray Jesus, we're not, you know, any reader of Matthew mm-hmm. wouldn't be surprised by this. Then the next scene moves to Matthew's account of Jesus' observation of the Passover meal with his disciples at the Last mm-hmm. Supper. And Matthew focuses on Jesus' instructions to the disciples to go to the city to prepare for the meal, again, suggesting that Jesus is exercising agency. Right. He's directing right. events. He's, he's choosing mm-hmm. his own path. Mm-hmm. And so we hit to the next scene, which then is this, the Passover itself. Yeah, and, and really tells the story of the Last Supper, which Ma- Matthew likely was depicting as a Ma- Passover meal, although that is subject to a great deal of debate in, the, in New Testament scholarship. Really? Oh, I mean, yes. I think most people assume that. No, no, no. It's because of the, the, the timing in the week. Um, and there's a big question over whether whether um, any of the gospels really portray Jesus' final meal as a as a truly as a Passover, or is it pre, prior to the Passover? And it's, so that's a, it's a big historical question. Oh yeah, that's the, well. Just supper. when you think about how we handle handle it liturgically, it's always mm-hmm. assumed as a Passover mm-hmm. meal, and, and people is. are even having these Passover style. seders exactly, yeah. Yeah. exactly. Which, so that's which Jewish people don't really care much for that that. Christian churches are, are right. taking their ritual and botching it. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. But as in as in Mark's gospel, though, this I think it's important to note that as in Mark's gospel, the story of the Last Supper begins with Jesus' prediction that one of you will betray me. I, you know, I really don't think this aspect of the Lord's Supper has been adequately accounted for in our preaching and teaching about the Lord's Supper. Mm-hmm. The whole scene in both Mark and Matthew of the Last Supper begins with this setting. They're setting down to, to the meal, mm-hmm. and Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. Right. That is huge, I think. Right, right. And and yet they all stay. They do. Stay. They do. Mm. And and each of the disciples ask, surely not I, Lord. And they ask it in such a way that they're assuming that the answer is no, it's not you. But Jesus responds by demonstrating that what was going to happen was not the result of the choices of Judas the betrayer. And that's mm-hmm. what he's called here. Judas ha paradidus. Mm-hmm. The one betraying, literally, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Judas the betrayer. But rather, this, this was what was written of him in verse 24. And so then Judas kind of reveals himself by saying, surely not I, Rabbi, mm-hmm. instead of calling him Lord, right. as the other disciples mm-hmm. did. And Jesus' reply was a clear yes, which is not brought out in all translations. And so we go ahead with the actual dining yeah well and it's against the backdrop of this dialogue that jesus shares the bread and cup with the disciples and both mark and matthew luke they all seem to presuppose that judas is present right i mean even right right, right. even in john's gospel at the at that final meal jesus dips the piece of bread in the in the sauce and hands it to judas right it's almost like john went out of his way to point that out yeah. that Judas was there yeah. right yeah. but I think that's important I mean otherwise based on the what we had before you would have thought Judas would have stood up and marched out and he right. did, doesn't so I think that's really a really big deal yeah. here's Judas yeah. right there yeah and and you know again this I think if we think of the theology of the Lord's Supper the fact that Jesus is offering the bread and cup even to Judas mm-hmm. that's Ex- huge Exactly. Yeah. Really, yeah. it is. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, in this in this dialogue, 
you know, that Jesus uh, initiates. Basically, he reinterprets the elements of the supper, if it was a Passover meal, from the deliverance of the ancestors from slavery in Egypt to his death, which will deliver them from their sins. Again, mm-hmm. sort of recalling the definition of his name, Jesus is the one who will save the people from their sins in Matthew one twenty one. Now, in the synoptic tradition generally, Uh, The Last Supper is the final meal Jesus shared, reminding the reader of the way Jesus had shared meals even with those who were outsiders. And that's an important thing as well to consider when we think about the Lord's Supper, mm-hmm. that it was, it was the final inclusive meal. I mean, Jesus is, Jesus is offering the bread and cup to one who's going to betray him and the rest of them who are going to desert him, mm-hmm. right? And one of them is right. going to flat out deny him, right? Right, so, right. Exactly. So, yeah. Um, again, I think that's significant. Um, but then, finally, the in in the synoptic tradition, the the words of Jesus at the Last Supper also point forward to the fulfillment of God's purposes in what Jesus calls the Father's yes, kingdom. Yes, yes, yes. So I just I love the agency of Jesus here. There's mm-hmm. there's, and I suppose I'm I'm trying to, you know, probably guilty. I think we all tend to kind of synthesize this together in our minds, and yet I think I personally have have adopted this. Jesus's agency in this and part of my understanding mm-hmm. of how this happened. Mm-hmm. Um, not everybody does. But not I think everybody a lot of people does. see him as a victim. I think, I think they do. And I think mm-hmm. we see that. And, and it's an interesting, and so I guess I'm trying to really lift this up here. Yep. Um, that, that Jesus is in control. Jesus is God. Well, he, and, he is, he is choosing his course. Yeah. He is, he is fulfilling his determination to carry out all righteousness. Right. He is, you know, he, he, he knows what he's doing. Mm-hmm. It's not a surprise. It's not a tragic turn of events. Mm-mm. Jesus is choosing this path. Yeah. Intentionally. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Yep. Okay. So then after supper. So then after the supper, Jesus turns to all of his disciples and tell them that they would all stumble because of him on that very night. And the word is scandalizo, and that's a huge term because it's a term that's applied to people who either cannot or will not believe. Right. For, for whatever reason. And so the idea of stumbling here really can be translated to fall mm-hmm. away, perhaps from following him or from their loyalty to him or from their faith. And that's the translation of the new NRSV updated edition. It's also the translation of the RSV and the New American Standard, uh, the NIV, the Net Bible, and the Common English Bible. But I think for all intents, it really meant that they would desert Jesus. And that's the translation of the original NRSV and the New Living Translation. Mm-hmm. And that's what I would prefer, probably. You know, as, I'm, as we're doing this, I'm, I'm having quite an emotional attachment to this word, um, um, that there's kind of a, you know, we were your biggest supporters. Oh, and (laughs) then we kind of walk away. And uh, to me, there's an emotional piece there that somehow is kind of left out in the translation. They deserted him. Yeah, this desertion and this... And I mean, it's the word is not betrayal, but it's it sounds very it sounds pretty close to it. And and but the word scandalizo is huge. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The fact that Jesus says you will all stumble, you will mm-hmm. all fall away, you will all desert me. You know, this is a strong word that is describes those who who are somehow well, either can't respond to Jesus in faith or won't respond right. to Jesus in faith. It's it's not to be taken lightly. No, exactly. And well. I think this is interesting in the context of Judas is here as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, Judas is made out to be the you know, know. the He's evil, the, 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 the in the depths of hell person, and mm-hmm. yet they all they, they all, all do it, and they all fall away. They all fall they away, all and uh, yep. I keep thinking again that emotional. Well, the emotional thing of falling away, and then likewise, once he's resurrected, mm-hmm. the emotional the experience of coming back. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So again, the gospel tradition sees this as a fulfillment of Scripture, uh, and this is also, of course, a theme in Matthew's gospel that we that we find. Now, in this context, Peter then insists that he will never desert Jesus, and Jesus tells Peter he will disown him. And Peter and all the others pledged to die for Jesus. Again, I think it's important to note that Jesus shares the Last Supper with those who either betray him, as mm-hmm, in Judas, mm-hmm. or those who desert him, which is the others, right, or, or right. with Peter, who's going to disown Jesus and deny him. And so then they dine, and we move to the next scene, the garden. Yep. 
The next scene is, is Jesus' prayer in the garden and his arrest. And he takes Peter, <laughs> who he knows he's already just said, you're going to disown right. me. But he takes Peter along with James and John, who had, by the way, earlier pledged to drink the same cup as Jesus was going to drink mm-hmm. in Matthew 20, mm-hmm. Right. And it's the same three. Who, these are the same three who witnessed the transfiguration. Right. right. And <laughs> For even, goodness sake. Even, yeah. And, and asked them, they, they took them a little bit farther and asked them to stay awake or to watch with him. And obviously, we know they weren't up to the task, but Jesus serves as the model of prayer, pouring out his lament to God as the psalmist did, but ultimately praying for God's will to be done, which reminds us of the Lord's mm-hmm. prayer in Matthew 6.10, thy will, be, you know, yep. thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus came back three times, and we've talked about three in, in, in Matthew's gospel, right. but it also kind of seems to mimic Peter's three times of de- denying Jesus. Mm-hmm. Jesus right, came right. back. Jesus came back three times to awaken them and ask them to watch, but they simply could not. And finally, the third time, he announced that the betrayer. And again, it's ha paradidus, mm-hmm. um, as a reference to to Judas. Judas. The betrayer mm-hmm. had arrived. I am. This idea of sleep too has intrigued me as well. And uh, does it have an? I probably a wrong question but does it have an allegorical meaning beyond that i mean this well, idea that they're so watchfulness is a theme in matthew's gospel mm-hmm. as we'll see when we get into some of the later parables that jesus is going to tell one of the one of the key tasks of discipleship is to watch mm-hmm. to stay awake to be alert and and you know in in matthew's gospel it has to do with the coming of the son of man in some respects but really it's it's really more about i think a, a metaphor for remaining true to your faith and remaining remaining true to the kingdom of God, mm-hmm. you know, in the face of all uh, temptations right. to, to turn away. Yeah. So we hit the next scene here. Yep. And this leads to the scene then where Jesus was betrayed by Judas and arrested. Mm-hmm. Now, we're not told when Judas had left the group of disciples mm-hmm. in Matthew's gospel. There's no notice. Now, John tells us that as soon as Jesus handed him the piece of bread, Judas took it and ate it and went out into the night. Mm -hmm. But John's the only one who tells us. The other Gospels don't really tell us, you know, when did Jesus leave the other group? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Perhaps after his interaction with Jesus where, 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 you know, he said, surely not I, Rabbi. And Jesus said, yeah, it's you. But more likely, I would say, after the Last Supper, when they left that place, wherever it was they were were, um, uh, taking the meal, to go to the Mount of Olives. Mm -hmm. That seems to be a logical place, partly because it doesn't make sense to think that Judas was among the disciples in the following scene as they're pledging to die for Jesus rather than desert him. Right. So then, ironically, here, Matthew still identifies Judas as one of the twelve. Yes. He's the betrayer, and he's coming to betray Jesus, and Matthew knows this, but he still identifies him as one of the 12, mm-hmm. and I think that's intentional, that, that it was, you know, again, playing up this idea that it was one of Jesus' own that betrayed him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so... Um, um, Jesus, uh, Judas again greets Jesus by calling him rabbi, which is the address that those outside the circle of disciples used for Jesus, as right. opposed to Lord, which is the character, characteristic so, way that disciples address Jesus in Matthew. This is a really interesting balance here where Jesus is still being inclusive of, or at least Matthew is, but I think Jesus mm-hmm. too, of Judas. But Judas is already counting himself outside, right? By this idea of Seems to be. not calling him Seems Lord. Seems to be. By, and what an interesting, I mean, I think that fits with this concept of the Last Supper that he shared also mm-hmm. with Judas. Mm-hmm. Um, and a really an intriguing um, kind of analysis of Jesus that I hadn't thought about before. You yeah. know, th- yeah. um, this not losing faith in anybody right he, he doesn't he yeah he doesn't reject them he yeah. he yeah. still embraces them uh with his love yeah, yeah very absolutely okay i keep my one other side comment is i keep thinking of you know we, we always try to depict this in some type of of theatrical scene and so as you're like well when does judas really leave and of course of course that's always depicted in mm. some kind of theater or you know movie scene and so that's it's interesting to think about how we are shaped by that without really having the language we don't really know Mm -hmm. but i would think a lot of people assume that he leaves before the last supper Mm. i think most people assume that judas isn't there yeah 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 Yeah. so um so then in this scene matthew reports that one of those with jesus struck the servant of the high priest with a sword and jesus rebukes the unnamed disciple here with a reminder that the kingdom of god was not defined by violence 
which only breeds more violence, but rather by love, even for enemies. Mm-hmm. And this recalls us to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 43, 44. Now, also, Jesus reminds his disciples here that he could call on legions of angels to come to his defense. But he says, how then would the scriptures be fulfilled, which say it must happen this way? And, and then later in, in, this, in the same uh, scene, he says he calls it specifically the scriptures of the prophets that are going to be fulfilled. Mm-hmm. And, but again, I think it's important for us to see that Jesus is not taking this path against his will, and yet at the same time, he's acknowledging that all things are in God's hands, and he is trusting God as he seeks to fulfill all righteousness mm-hmm. by fulfilling the scriptures. Right. And then we move on to the next scene. Yeah, and the next scene, uh, the shift, the scene shifts to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, where Jesus undergoes a trial at the hands of a gathering of scribes and elders. We're not really told who's there. It's just a group of certain leaders. That they had no interest in justice is demonstrated by the fact that they were, um, Matthew simply says they were looking for false testimony against Jesus in verse 59. And finally, two came forward and agreed that Jesus said he could destroy the temple of God and build it mm-hmm. in three days, which is an allusion in yep. the synoptic gospel to the event that's only reported in John right. chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. When Jesus did not deny this charge, Caiaphas placed Jesus under oath and demanded that he tell us if you are the Messiah. Basically, he demanded him, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God, in verse 63. And it's important that we catch the wording here, because the Messiah, the Son of God, echoes Peter's earlier confession of Jesus in Matthew Mm -hmm. 16, 16. And so at this point, Jesus affirms that he is indeed the Messiah, the Son of God, without reference to any oath. And this, again, recalls the teaching on the Sermon on the Mount that let your yes be yes and your no be no. Just a simple declaration of the truth. Uh, and and Bill Mounts, who is a New Testament scholar, um, uh, he, he, he's written uh, New Testament uh, Greek grammar. He has published some commentaries. His, his translation of it, I think, is a good one. It is as you have said. Now, uh, Phillips and the Living Bible also have something like this, but all the other English Bibles have you, you have said so, which is a literal translation of the Greek. It's su ipos, you have said so. But, you know, you have said so really leaves the meaning more ambiguous. It, you're not really sure from you have said so whether Jesus is affirming it or not. Mm-hmm. And from what I can, again, from what I can tell, most people think that Jesus is affirming it, that this is really, yeah, mm. Jesus is saying yes. Um, uh, and so I like Mounts's translation, it is as you have said. Mm. But okay. we need to also realize that at this point, that, mm-hmm. that, that, that Jesus goes on to follow up with a declaration that indicates that he's even more than they could imagine. He's not just a human Messiah. He is the Son of Man who will be seated at the right hand of power and come one day on the clouds of heaven mm-hmm. in, in mm-hmm. Matthew 26, 64, which is, which is a quotation from Daniel 7, right. 13 and 14. So then the final episode in this scene recounts Peter's fulfillment of Jesus' prediction that he would deny Jesus, and he did so with an oath <laughs> and a curse. So what a difference. Yeah, yeah, and we're I meant to see picked, that. I don't, know if, I don't know if I would have picked up on that, so that's helpful as well. Um, so then we go to the trial. Yep, and so at this point, the scene shifts to the next trial, which is the trial before right. Pilate. And Matthew notes that mourning came. So we should understand that all that had that preceded happened during the night. At this point, it seems that we should envision a gathering of the full council of Jewish leaders who decided to take him before Pilate. Mm-hmm. The question has been raised um, um, among historians as to whether uh, the right. Jewish council had the authority to carry out a death sentence on their own, whether they had the authority. I, I think it's clear from historical records that they did take that uh, power into their hands at time. But I think Pilate as the Roman governor had the power because he commanded Roman right, legions. Right. And so perhaps they also wanted to defer responsibility for so. Jesus' death from themselves, at least in the eyes of the people. I think so. Yeah. 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 So they'd bring him before Pilate. Now in this context, Matthew adds the story of Jesus' regret and suicide. Mm-hmm. And this is unique to Matthew's gospel. It's only found in Matthew. And so w- this is something that, that we should keep in mind. Now, there is an oblique reference to, to the, these 
these ideas in, in Acts 1, 15 to 20. Mm-hmm. Peter makes an oblique reference to it there in Acts chapter 1. But, but um, um, Matthew's the only one who tells us the story. And we're not told why Judas's change of heart didn't lead to restoration, but Peter's did. Um, and Gene Boring, in his commentary in the New Interpreter's Bible, suggests that from Matthew's perspective, what Judas lacks is a fundamental reorientation to the kingdom represented by Jesus. Mm-hmm. So it's a problem of discipleship. Judas, Judas uh, fails as a disciple. Uh, Judas fails to, to, to perceive the kingdom of God. Judas fails to align his life with the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. And, and that is why Judas hangs himself in despair. Yeah. Not because there was no way that he could go to Jesus. I think if he had gone to Jesus personally, I think if he had gone to Jesus and asked for forgiveness, he would have been restored just as Peter was. Mm-hmm. I, I think this is, I think it's brilliant. And I think it's, um, I think it's thoughtful about uh, a Judas, again, taking him out of kind of this kind of historical tradition of um, the whole, his scapegoat role that scapegoat. he's been put, painted in. Yeah. yeah. And it doesn't, it doesn't really fit with, with I think who Jesus is, or, and 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 really what a broader theology of God is. Exactly. So exactly. this is, um, I think this is so helpful. Yeah. yeah. So then we come to Pilate's interrogation of Jesus, where Jesus remains basically silent. And again, perhaps this is meant to be a reminiscence of of the servant song in Isaiah fifty two, um, and in especially Isaiah fifty three seven. You know, as a lamb is silent before the shearers. Um, so um, uh, Jesus remained silent before Pilate. Um, and I think the difference between the Jewish interrogation and Pilate's interrogation is that, you know, with the Jewish people, he was dealing with folks who should have been able to get what he was saying. And with Pilate, you know, the, this, was just, uh, this was just a guy who was on a power trip, and there was really no, no <laughs> opportunity there. So um, that scene is followed by the custom of releasing a prisoner Mm -hmm. during the Passover festival. And in Matthew's gospel, Barabbas is simply a notorious prisoner. We we may recall a couple of years ago, we looked at Mark's account. Barabbas was a lestace. He was a bandit. He was an Mm -hmm. insurrectionist. And and, uh, Pilate was intentionally trying to portray Jesus as an insurrectionist um, by by linking him with Barabbas. But in Matthew's gospel, Barabbas is just a common criminal. And I think in Matthew, we're meant to see the contrast between Jesus, who will save his people, who is the beloved son of, Right. Of God, according to the voice from heaven at the baptism in Matthew three seventeen and at the transfiguration in Matthew seventeen five, with Jesus Barabbas, who's a common criminal. Now, one of the things we need to note is that there are some Greek manuscripts that include the name Jesus yeah. with Barabbas. Um, not every translation of the New Testament follows this. The Good News translation has it. The most recent NIV has it, but the earlier versions of the NIV does not. Huh. Uh, the message translation has it. The New American Bible has it in brackets, which probably indicates that it's questionable. Mm-hmm. The Net Bible has it, which is that it's an on, originated as an online Bible and has mm-hmm. copious notes. The CEV has it. Tom Wright's New Testament for Everyone has it, and the new RSV has it. So again, basically all of these editorial committees are making, uh, or, or translators are making a textual critical decision as to whether or not to include the name. But I mm-hmm. think it makes sense that in Matthew's gospel, we have the contrast between Jesus who will save his people and who is the beloved son of God, and Jesus Barabbas, who is a common criminal. Mm-hmm. And it seems obvious that Pilate intended for the crowd to choose Jesus of Nazareth, but his plan backfired when, when the Jewish religious leaders inspired the crowd to choose Jesus Barabbas. Interesting, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I haven't thought. I, I'm familiar with Jesus being with Barabbas, Jesus Barabbas, mm-hmm. um, but I have always wondered why maybe it hasn't been in there. So that's an interesting. Yeah, it's a textual problem. It's a textual problem. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So then, at this point, Pilate infamously washes his hands of the matter, and the people as a whole took responsibility, saying, his blood be on us and our children, which is probably one of the most infamous mm-hmm. verses from Matthew's gospel in Matthew twenty-seven twenty-five. It has been misused through the ages as a pretext for anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. But in this context, it probably reflects the views of the Christian community. And again, we have to remember that Matthew's community was under pressure from the synagogue, if not 
you know, actively separating from the synagogue or perhaps being pushed out by the synagogue. So, so this reflects the, the views of the Christian community under pressure from the synagogue, looking back perhaps to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 CE as a consequence mm-hmm. for the Jewish people and their mm-hmm. rejection in their rejection of Jesus. So it's, the point is it's limited to that. This is not his blood be on us and on our children roll without end forever, ever and ever. It's that, which is, which is the way people take it, it to use it as a pretext for anti-Semitism. but rather in, in Matthew's context, um, it seems that the destruction was Jerusalem was interpreted as a consequence on the Jewish nation for their rejection of mm-hmm. Jesus. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've seen that in Luke's gospel, you know, with the, with Jesus lamenting over Jerusalem, right, you know, right, how often right, have right. I wanted to gather you, but you did not want recognize the time of your visitation, you know? And so you see that elsewhere in the in the new in the gospel yeah 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 we do so again the people there clearly made the wrong choice by aligning (laughs) themselves with the kingdom of this world represented by the power of rome against the kingdom of god represented by jesus commitment to fulfill all righteousness and um of course you know all this piles up then to this this next scene you know where we have the just the 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 cruel, the cruelness, the mockery mm-hmm. that the, mm-hmm. the <laughs> it's kind of we're kind of where instead of the um, it, it just where all humanity kind of falls apart in it. Yes, with indeed. All this yes, indeed. Yeah, it's kind of interesting that none of the gospels really go in depth about the actual crucifixion. They just simply say they crucified him. Right. But they do go in depth with the with the derision, with the mockery, mm-hmm. with the slander that Jesus had to endure. And so here we have the Roman soldiers mocking Jesus as the king of the Jews. And we saw that when we discussed Mark's version of the story. It, and it's filled mm-hmm. with irony. And we're simply told, you know, at the end of this, that they led him away to crucify mm-hmm. him mm-hmm. without any graphic description, any of the graphic description that's become popular in these days, you know, to try to portray what crucifixion was like. But rather, the really, in, in Matthew's gospel, the scene of Jesus' death on the cross is framed by allusions to, Matt, to Psalm 22, as we also discussed in connection with Mark in episode 29 for March 28, 2021, if you want to go back and listen to that. So furthermore, then, the mocking that Jesus receives from those who attend his crucifixion further emphasizes his commitment to fulfill mm-hmm. God's will, even at the cost of his own life. In Matthew's gospel, I think it's important for us to note that there is no one at the cross who sympathizes with him. Yeah. There, yeah. None of his disciples are there. there, there there's, no, there's no Mary and John there. There's no um, thief on the cross. It's just de- Jesus on the cross by yeah, himself. Yeah, that, and, and I think, that's where we tend to synthesize these and always assume, mm-hmm. oh, well, those other crosses are there. Those other, and here we are. No, mm-hmm. this he's alone, and that's yeah. really huge. The other thing I wanted to point out with this is, is as you said, instead of this kind of graphic detail of crucifixion, which is what we think is in there, um, but really this emphasis on um, this pain it's caused by by words and mm-hmm. deeds mm-hmm. Um, that. I find awful to read too. You know? Well, and and you know, one of the things I, I you know I was I was working with Gene Boring's commentary. One of the things he wanted to he pointed out was you know Matthew presents Jesus' death as being for us and for our sins and for the forgiveness of our sins without endorsing any kind of theory of atonement. But really, the meaning of Jesus' death is interpreted through the lens of Psalm twenty-two, mm-hmm. and the idea mm-hmm. is really that Jesus is fulfilling God's purpose. By doing this, and he's doing it intentionally because of his commitment to God to fulfill all righteousness. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, he, he cries out in anguish, and yep. yet he 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 also, I think we could say, here's one place where I would I would I would bring in Luke's saying on the cross, "Into your hands I commend my spirit." He mm-hmm. also cries out to God in faith, mm-hmm. and so I mean, this whole this whole episode we're meant to see is Jesus step by step entrusting his life into God's hands, even to the point of being lifted up on the cross and dying. He's, that's an entrusting mm-hmm. of right. his life into God's hands right, as well. Right. Yeah. Um, and so then we go to the scene of the death. Yeah. And as in Mark's gospel, Jesus cries out with the opening words of Psalm 22, 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is a cry of anguish, but not of despair. And I think that's an important distinction mm, to make. Well, I think some people do think that's despair. Mm-hmm. I, um, well, because people have this idea that God, for, God turned his back mm-hmm, on Jesus. There's mm-hmm. nothing in the New Testament that suggests that. 
Okay. Nothing in the New Testament that suggests that. I, you know, I've had people ask that before, so and I think that's one we should be in tune with here. I mean, it's it to me, it's it's in, it's inadequately trinitarian in concept because if Jesus is mm-hmm. God in flesh, then how could God turn his back exactly. on God? Right? Well, I agree. I agree. <laughs> but I think it's important to, to highlight here briefly, mm. just to point that out. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's a cry of anguish, obviously, but mm-hmm. not one of despair. He 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 is entrusting his, himself into God's hands. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, it's one of the things I will point out is that Matthew likely changes Mark's Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, that's, mm-hmm. that's the Aramaic for mm-hmm. my God, my God, to El, Eli, Eli, which is, it conforms more to the Hebrew Bible. That's the opening of, of Psalm 22, 1 in the mm-hmm. Hebrew Bible. So, and, and this is probably intentional on Matthew's part and reflects sort of the nature of probably Matthew's community. Matthew also changes, he breathed his last. That's what Mark says in Mark 15, 37. Accept new sin, or he expired, to he gave up his spirit. Mm. Now, we don't see that in the translations very well reflected because most of the translations also translate he gave up his spirit to he breathed his last. Oh. And, 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 you know, the thing, the thing that, that is significant is there's a difference between he expired and he gave up yes, his spirit, yes, yes. right? Mm-hmm. He inspired is something to expire is something that just sort of happens to you. To give up your spirit again implies this agency that we're seeing throughout mm-hmm. Matthew's um, passion narrative. That Jesus is intentional uh, about every path mm-hmm. he takes, every step he takes on this path. Yeah, yeah. This is much more intentional. This is cool. Yeah, yeah. and and. I, I, I'm looking at the Greek, and I can see it myself. Um, yeah, it's afekentanuma. He gave up his mm-hmm. spirit. But unfortunately, most English translations just simply say he breathed his oh. last. And give up your spirit is, a, is an idiom that can be translated in English as breathing the last. That's what we would say right, in English. Right. But there's a difference between he expired, except Nusen, and he gave up his spirit. I agree. I agree. No, yeah. I like this. Yeah. I like this. Um, and then Matthew then also adds some, tells us about some of the signs. Yeah, and again, this is something that's unique to Matthew's gospel. So I, I love this part. Yeah, <laughs> only Matthew tells us about the signs that accompany mm-hmm. Jesus' death. The tearing of the curtain, separating the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple, perhaps signifying that it is no longer the site of God's presence. There's an earthquake. And then there's a what seems to be preliminary resurrection of many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep. And, of course, in the original context, the reference to the saints who had fallen asleep would be to Jewish people, very likely who identified with the kingdom. But I would say it's likely that Matthew's community, reading it after, you know, long after the death and resurrection of Jesus, probably read it with more than one meaning. And I think about Paul's talking about those who had fallen asleep. You know, they're, they're, they're not going to be left out right. in 1 Thessalonians right. chapter 4. And so this was a concept that was, that was part of the Christian community. Mm-hmm. And again, um, Boring interprets this resurrection of the saints um, in this way. He says, already in the death of Jesus, the eon-changing or the, or the world-changing power of God brings in. In other words, uh, with, with Jesus' death, there's a change in eras. There's a whole new era that is entered, and and this era changing power of God breaks in, and and it's sort of it sounds like it sort of spills over onto some of the people in the tombs that were mm-hmm, nearby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And of course, um, then we have those who are around him, the, the centurion and the um, the soldiers. Are yeah, right. and they're they're the only ones who are with him in, in Matthew's gospel. The centurion and those with him, implying the company of soldiers, and perhaps. I think we're meant to say this as the company of soldiers who had previously mocked him. Yes. <laughs> That's the, yeah. they're, they're the, these are the only ones who were there with him at the cross right. are the, are these soldiers who had previously mocked him, right? And, right. and insulted right. him when they saw these portents, Matthew says they were terrified and they all, not just one man as in, as in, as in Mark's gospel, not mm-hmm. just the centurion, but they all said, Truly, this man was God's son. Mm. Again, echoing Jesus' affirmation, when the, when the chief priest asked, are you yep, the yep. Messiah, the son of God? Jesus said, yes, it is as you said. Peter's confession, you are the Messiah, the son of God, in Matthew 16, 16. These pagan Roman soldiers, <laughs> yeah, when they yeah. saw what happened, yeah. said, truly, this man was God's son. Right. Yeah. And it's 
it, it, it kind of is a shift from this kind of groupthink of misbehavior and and and, yeah. and all of a sudden this awareness um this awareness and and, and well and it yeah. may, there may be a hint here of the, the of the mission to the gentiles well i, I wondered well. about that yeah. too there right? may be a hint yeah. here of the mission to I the agree. gentiles i think so i think so it opens the door certainly right and and that's a theme in matthew's gospel it is yeah. it is yeah and so, how does this conclude? So, the story concludes with Matthew's efforts to head off what was a popular claim that was made in Jewish circles, at least at a later date, that Jesus' body was stolen by his disciples. We find it in Talmudic resources. Right. He identifies the women. Now, I hate to disappoint you, but Matthew says that they followed him from Galilee, which is different from Mark. Mark said they were following him in Galilee and they were serving him. Matthew seems to downplay their role. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Matthew's gospel, the only role that the women have is that they are they are watching over the tomb, along with Joseph of Arimathea, who takes the body, who is otherwise unknown in Matthew, and then finally the temple guard that the Jewish leaders place to watch over the tomb. All of these, the women, Joseph of Arimathea, the temple guard, they're all there um, to to for Matthew's to serve Matthew's purpose of showing that no mm-hmm. nobody stole Jesus from the tomb that right, couldn't happen right yeah. exactly um, and so and just to conclude here then I mean we've kind of walked through this whole thing carefully um, what's you know I suppose what's the biggest theme that we pull out of this well I would say that Mash, again Matthew's passion narratives highlights themes that he has emphasized all along mm-hmm. in the gospel that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God that's a very strong emphasis in Matthew's gospel that he was rejected by his people and not by the worst of his people but by the very by the yeah. best right by yes. the by the by the people at the top of, of Jewish society and 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 it's in this conflict between the kingdoms of the world and the kingdom of God which which also we saw right from the start with with Herod, right, seeking mm-hmm. his life um, in the infancy narrative. And finally, the, the whole idea that Jesus fulfilled all righteousness to the very end, this is something that, that started at the baptism, right? And, right. And, and it has kind of wound its way through the whole gospel until we get to this point. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, friends. We're back, and we are going to shift gears and take a look at what Christie found in connection with the Reformation, and especially dealing with this whole issue of how this passage contributed to anti-Semitism in the history of the church. Yeah, and it's one of the big discussions of the church is how the crucifixion of Christ contributed to the rise of anti-Semitism, and this really all has to do, of course, with the idea of who killed Jesus. And um, during the history of the church— there are times when the Jews were blamed for killing Jesus and therefore were made enemies of the church. Well, and this, they were labeled Christ killers. Christ killers, exactly. Yeah. Um, this is not one of Christianity's, if you will, the, the faith as a whole, best, best historical moments, I would, by I the way. Say that's, I would say that's, a, that's perhaps uh, um, an understatement. <laughs> but I, I wanted to address it today to help people come to terms with the challenges that our history gives us. And I think we have to remember that the church is made up of people, sinful people who have and do make poor decisions and poor doctrine. And one of the reasons that I love being Presbyterian is the emphasis on continuing to reform, which means examination of the church, our role as Christians within the context of God. Yeah, it reminds me of, a st- of the statement in the original 1789 um, statement about the, the, the government of the Presbyterian church that, that counsels may and do err. <laughs> exactly. They may and they do err. And yeah. well, so often I'll run into um, folks that will say, well, gosh, I don't want to be Christian because look at all that bad mm-hmm. stuff they've done. Not realizing much good stuff has been done. Right. I would right. argue more good than bad, but it's still part of our human, our human history, our human, yes. our human weakness, our human sin that well, has I led th- to these. I think that's key. This is not just a Christian or a church problem. This is a human problem. It's a human problem, yeah. exactly. And so, not being a part of the church isn't 
<laughs> I mean, Vladimir Putin is, I don't think anybody would accuse him of being a Christian. And, and he has a, a hatred for the, the Ukrainians that is, that is clearly, you know, right. Some, right. some sort of ethnic bias going on right. there. Then this is just, this is a human exactly, problem. Exactly, exactly. And then, too, on top of this, some things that people assumed were right, we now understand as being wrong. Yeah. But it doesn't mean the whole church is bad. And it's hard to say, well, how could anti-Semitism be seen as, as something that was ever right? Um, but you're dealing in an age where there was a thought that everybody had to be Christian. Everyone had to have that same identity. Well, and you know, there are people in our culture that we perceive as being a threat to us. Mm-hmm. I would say especially perhaps Muslim people who are maybe even marked by their dress as, as right, we suspect right. them as being radical right. Muslims. Well, in that day, uh, Jewish people were, were seen as being a threat. Right. So, again, horrible. And I, I don't, yes. I, I want everyone to understand that, but yes. we do have to understand these mistakes of the, of, of the church. Um, and then um, that allows us, I think, to move forward and to make things better, hopefully moving towards make things right. So we're going to look a little bit at the tradition of anti-Semitism that emerged, um, particularly in an early modern church. So in the early centuries of Christianity, we see a pretty complex relationship between Jews and Christians. Like in the Gospel of John, we see the Jews being identified in opposition to the Christians. And as we discussed last week, this gospel tends to be interpreted in terms of black and white. And while we can understand his use, John's use of the word Jews in terms of Jewish leadership, this does not mean that the interpretation of the scripture in later generations recognized the Jews right. as leaders. Right. So here is one place where Jews, taken out of context, begin to divide Jews from Christians. Um, And this practice of reading John as a scripture of anti-Semitism, then as a whole, does not come about to the Middle Ages. We have a strong support for Jews in the early fathers, who as a whole recognized Jews as the people through whom the gospel would arise. Yeah, and I think about um, Eusebius's um, concept of the preparatio evangelica. You know, it's the preparation for the gospel through the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're the ones who, through whom, I mean, it's sort of like our covenant theology of that God made the covenant exactly. with, the, with the, the descendants of Abraham and used that to bring about our, our salvation in Christ. Exactly. You know? yeah. And of course, it is in this period that we um, would recognize the Hebrew scriptures as central to the Christian faith. Surely. So again, having this value. However, despite these positive views, they can't escape Augustine's interpretation of Psalm 59, which is used as a foretelling of the passion of Christ and then Matthew 27, 25, quote, may the blood of be upon us and upon our children, yeah, yeah. Which, which Alan referred to. So um, we move into the Middle Ages. The attitudes toward the Jews become more and more negative. And I think a couple of things lead to this. First, the consolidation and growth of the church under the Holy Roman Empire. Um, As the post-Roman church tried to unify itself and all people, they took control of liturgy, behavior, and belief. Um, And this is very much divided to those who believe in the church and those who don't. Now, I want to put this out there, though, is even though you get this this rising kind of anti-Semitism, the the Jews are still actually protected. There's there's rules against going against forced conversion of Jews. Hmm. So again, it's this kind of it's so, but it kind of makes them more shady and more questioned because they're they're still protected at this point. Um, Hmm. But in the rising age of persecution, which I argue really kind of begins with the um, called the first Crusades in 1099 by Urban II, that we begin this rise of the persecuting society. And there's other pieces that go on to the, into that with, in terms of um, um, social, uh, in terms of power, in terms of um, um, identity. Um, But the crusades have a part with it. Um, And anyway, at least at this point, um, when Urban calls them, he says, look, you need to leave the Jews alone. We're after, we're after the Muslims. We're after the Holy Land that they have taken over. Mm -hmm. We're we're coming to the aid of our brothers 
and sisters in Christ that are in the Eastern Orthodox tradition. Okay, which is really not true, but that's what... Right, (laughs) right, right. That was the line, anyway. (laughs) Um, But these simple guys going out to fight, they don't see the difference and, and while the and the persecution happened anyway and and they're, the, these simple knights are going out and they're like well if we're supposed to be fighting against those who actively persecute christians then shouldn't we have attacked those who persecuted christ mm-hmm. i mean mm-hmm. that wow. was the take wow. on it yeah. so by the time we get to the reformation jews had been placed in the ghettos and reduced their uh, work to money lending and this really happens really beginning in about, oh, I think we see the first persecutions of the 12th century and the, the first um, removal to the ghettos. Um, and, and then they're moving up um, really until 1492. That's where we see the last. That's, that's Spain. Mm. Um, that's the consolidation of Spain. That's the kicking out of the Jews and the Muslims from Spain. And that really is the con- kind of the concluding date we see um, around all of Europe. So it's really a trend everywhere. Yeah. Um, and it's just lack of, of tolerance that's going on, that they are they are um, endangering the, the Christian purity of, of Christendom. Mm. And uh, so... Well, I find it interesting, you know, these days you have all this rhetoric among anti-Semites about... Um, the, the, the Jewish banking cabal and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But it's, it sounds to me like it was the, the Jews were forced into, into banking because yep. that was the only thing they were allowed to do. They uh, weren't allowed to do other forms of work. Uh, absolutely. That's how they ended up in there. And it was all against the Christian in, injunction against usury, right? Yeah, so yeah. that's how Jews ended up in that situation. So the Christians didn't want to taint themselves with that, Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> exactly. And also the guilds wouldn't mm-hmm. allow Jews in, in there as well. So that's mm-hmm. why you don't see Jews in the guilds. And if you can't, if you can't be part of the guild, you can't be recognized as somebody um, that can do the craft within right. the city. No, yeah, being part of a guild was 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 essential to being able to have a craft. Exactly, exactly. So they're really limited. I'm, there are probably a few folks that were operating outside of town. Mm-hmm. Um, now I do want to point out, um, and we've I think we've mentioned this before that as these Jews are kicked out, they. Of, of Europe, there there are a few places where they go. Um, some of the free cities um, into what's eastern um, Eastern Europe. I, I I think Alan found a, a reference to it as the swath. What you the, call the it? pale of settlement? The pale of settlement. Yes. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a swath of territory that's sort of Eastern Europe and Western yeah. Russia that goes from the Baltic Sea all the way down yeah. to the Black Sea. So many folks there, which is of course we see that in World War Two, right when mm-hmm. we when Hitler starts to take places over, um, and um, so anyway, um, and as I'll talk about later, but we really don't see them in, in the area of what's now Switzerland at all, the Swiss cantons. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a couple places where they are able to settle where it's, where it's, um, they kind of have a free city kind of mentality, but um, even like the city of Strasbourg, they're kicked out of very early is what mm-hmm. I, I learned. So, mm-hmm. um, so in this world, this kind of, um, kind of social world, there's great anti-Jewish sentiment in the Middle Ages. And, and I mean, yeah, we're talking very early. I mean, like the 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th yeah, centuries. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, um, at the, the Reformation, we see a renewed interest in Hebrew scriptures mm-hmm. um, and reading in Hebrew. So as we look at reformers, we get this kind of mixed bag. Um, there is a renewed effort to convert Jews to Christianity and a real hope that uncovering the true scripture would lead to conversion. So Wolfgang Capito, Andrea Osiander would argue that toleration of Jews would lead to their conversion. Mm. On the other hand, Roman Catholic leaders accused the Protestants of being Judaizers. <laughs> Boy, the labels that got thrown around yes, during that time. Yes, yes, And of course, while there were some people that did convert, many did not. And this led to hardening positions against Jews in the mid-16th century. And it's particularly true in the Lutheran tradition. Um, now, Calvin and the Reformed tradition had a little bit greater respect for the Hebrew scriptures as part of the entire narrative of God. But as a whole, the Reformation left Europeans with that negative view of Jews and a consistent anti-Jewish polemic that would resurface again and again Mm -hmm. in European politics. Mm -hmm. And I would argue that 
this has a political nature with the formation of Germany and its rise to prominence in the 19th century, um, a, a country that builds itself on the ideology of a Germany for the Germans. And that's mm-hmm. all part of the modern nation building. Um, so if you're having the people that are belong in the nation, then there are those who have no home. Yeah. And of course, this moves up until the 20th century and obviously into the Zionist movement as well, uh, you know, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, for us, it leads us to this passage, which even though I might argue that the anti-Jewish stance developed more from social and economic reasons, the scriptural basis laid in, in this idea is that the Jews killed Jesus. Mm. You can hear some of this language in John Cromp. Uh, he's an Anglican bishop, and he says, and just listen to the, the language here. An unhappy exchange for you Jews, thus to desire the wolf before the lamb, the noxious and violent, before the righteous and innocent, their impious and ungodly life-taker, before the peaceable and merciful life-giver, wretched men that you are, so to prefer death before life, Mm. sin before God and Barabbas. O the devil before Christ, with whom you shall be sure for your pains to suffer eternal pains and hellfire. Goodness gracious. Yeah. So you can hear the language. Yeah. Yeah. and while it's prevent, pre, pre, present here, it's not as prevalent in the majority of commentaries as mm. I thought. And um, I, I really think that's because at least most of these guys are trying to keep some distance between what they're think, seeing as scholarly work and polemical work. Oh, but we've, we hear the polemic come in before, yeah. but I didn't see it as much in Luther or in Calvin in the commentaries, right? But it doesn't mean that Luther <laughs> is not anti-Jewish because he is, particularly at the end of his career. And in earlier Jewish studies, um, this has been kind of pushed aside, but lately it's been of great interest as people are trying to look at patterns of anti-Semitism in modern Germany, which is obviously huge for Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. Thomas Kaufmann in his book, Luther's Jews, um, he tends to put them in the same anti-Christian camp uh, Luther does as the Turks and the Papists. Wow. And at the beginning of the Reformation, as I said, Luther's writings were somewhat favorable to the Jews. Um, um, again, that kind of um, idea that uh, they were the, 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 the predecessors to the Christian faith. Sure. But after that, that becomes harsh. He writes against the Jews. He writes an entire tract against that. Mm. It's filled with... Um, it's filled with paranoia. It's filled with myth. Um, and also, he's just harping on this. If they saw the truth, they would be Christian. It's very much like his idea that anyone who could see the true scripture would obviously be Christian. It's like if they see it, they, they would obviously be Christian. And when he's seeing that they're not converting, then he becomes even more skeptical of them. Mm, wow. um, as they said, he, he, uh, he actually argues that sh- Jews should be converted and baptized or banished. Mm. And so Luther truly feared the Jews and as enemies of Christ, at least by the end of his life. Now, Calvin um, and his Swiss counterparts, who likely had less contact with Jews than Luther, probably because um, the Jews were banned in the Swiss cantons um, and where Luther would have had more contact within the free cities. Recent scholarship has shown that Calvin has distinctly different comments between the Jews of Scripture and the Jews of his time. So he's still an anti-Semite, but you don't really see it falling into some of his broader comments and into um, his commentary. He separates perhaps the children of Israel from the Jews of his time. Absolutely. And he is a man of his time. um, That he is much more positive about the Jews and Luther and others in a tradition. Uh, One of the Main uh, historians for this is a woman named Sejan Pack, and I have I have I have referenced her before, mm-hmm. and she argues that Calvin's exegesis of biblical Jews is much more balanced. So, what does it mean for us? Was Calvin a great supporter of the Jews? Not so much. But I do think it is interesting that he really is trying to look at Scripture within its context and is really much more balanced than those that preceded him. In other words, he's really ahead of his time, yet again. Um, and he does live in it with the context of that anti-Semitic world. And I think with someone like Calvin, we expect him to be um, more modern than he is. Um, but again, in a way he is, uh, but he's not modern according to by today's standards as pack says she does not see calvin's position as anti-jewish but quote they become anti-jewish when they are linked with the 
a simultaneous tradition of denigration of Jews and Judaism. And so what we need to understand, I think, is that we too are impacted by our own historical reality, and that in order to be fair to Scripture, we need to be aware of our own biases and those of the interpreters who came before. So that's what I have, and I know we have had a long session, Um, but I kind of wanted to just you know, move back again to thinking about this scripture now and what it really means for us today and how this um, fits into um, maybe how we present it to others. I'll have to say I, I'm, I'm, I'm shocked, really, to learn that Augustine used Isaiah, uh, Psalm 59. <laughs> yeah. Interpreted that with reference to the Jews. Because if you read Psalm 59, you know, it's, it's a prayer for deliverance from bloodthirsty enemies and their howling dogs uh, with, mm-hmm. with, you know, sharp words on their lips. Um, uh, you know, uh, basically calling down cursing and lies and praying for them to be consumed in wrath. Um, you know, they're, again, howling like dogs, roaming about for food and growling if they don't get it. This is just... This is really amazing that Augustine could see that passage as refer- referring to the, referring to Jews, but I guess again we see it as sort of the development of 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 how the church began to see the Jewish people mm-hmm. as the enemies of Christ and as as killers of Christ and as the enemies of faith and as a threat. Mm-hmm. I guess mm-hmm. it's it's just to me it's shocking that they would that that that. It a is. man of Augustine's stature, right. his education, his theological acumen, his biblical acumen right. would take a passage like that and so egregiously um, just, uh, uh, you know, um, read into it. Exactly. You know, and then a foreign but, concept. But look at how that's impacted our, our, our biblical exegetes really into the present. I know. And, and, and I'm sure, I mean, I, I'm not an expert in the present in a way, but I mean, in terms of, I'm sure there's people out there still saying that in I'm modern, sure day, there modern are. day commentaries. I will say a lot of, most of the, most of the modern day commentaries that address this particular passage and, and, the, and the verse in Matthew 27, you know, let his blood be upon us and our children. Most of the commentaries that I would use or that we would use right. in our context are going to be sensitive to the fact that it has been used uh, in, in, in really egregiously yeah. anti-Semitic yeah. ways Absolutely. in the history of, in yeah. the history of, of culture. Um, and that that's not that's not uh, um, uh, um, um, an adequate use. So there there are some I people agree. who would even go to the extreme of saying that the New Testament is anti-Semitic, and there are anti-Semitic passages in Matthew and perhaps even in Paul. And I I think that's going too far because again I think we have to remember that Matthew's community was a a, a struggling community. There was not the monolithic right. church that we have now. They were they were struggling for their survival uh, over against the synagogue, which was relatively strong, and um, um, they were being persecuted. I mean, right. this, this was a persecuted minority, basically. Right. And so, you know, yeah, we might say to see the destruction of Jerusalem as a punishment from God because they rejected Jesus. Well, that's pretty... Yeah, that's kind of iffy, right? right. That's, that's pushing it some. And I would agree with that. But um, again, I think we have to put ourselves in their shoes and in their context. Right. Um, you know, I did a... Uh, my, my, my PhD dissertation was about um, uh, the Hellenists in Acts, and I did a, a thing on Stephen's speech. And, and there are some people who want to make out, um, you know, the Christian uh, rhetoric in even in Acts as being anti-Semitic. Oh, mm-hmm. And, you know, um, um, you know I, I tried to point out in, 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 in the paper that I wrote uh, that, um, you know, we have to, we have to rec- realize that, you know, um, uh, people like Stephen and in the early church, they were they were being they were the ones being persecuted. Right. right. And and right. on one sense, in one hand, on the other hand, we're talking about intra-Jewish conflict. Right. We're talking about Jewish Christians exactly. in conflict. With, and I think with, that's a big important thing that's forgotten. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, the Roman Empire doesn't come in and, and make no. any distinction between no. Christians and Jews. It's it's like it's like the prophet Jeremiah criticizing the the Jewish people of his day. You don't call Jeremiah anti Semitic because he criticized the Jewish right. people of his day. Yeah. 
Yep. And yep. and so I think that's a it's a it's a bit of a historical anachronism to read anti-Semitism into the New Testament. I, I agree a hundred percent. I agree a hundred percent. So I guess you know at the end of the day the. The learning is this is just to be aware of how scripture is misused and yet be aware and, and this one in particular because this this can take us so far away mm-hmm. from what we did learn today yeah. was Jesus and Jesus is still in this space of forgiveness of someone like Judas. Yeah. I'm just I'm struck amazing. I'm struck by the by the by the by the image of Judas being at the table and receiving the, the bread and the and the cup. I think that's I'm also amazing. struck by Peter and the others being you know that Jesus right. is giving the cup the bread and the cup to Peter and the others. I think it's amazing that Je- you know Jesus knows I think right. what's going to happen. He knows that Judas is going to betray him. He knows that Peter is going to deny him. He knows that the others right. are going to desert him right. and he still offers them the bread and the cup. Yeah. That's that's, that's huge. Just, Mind-boggling. It is mind-boggling. I mean, to me, that is grace. <laughs> because how many of us could do it? Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, Literally nobody. I mean. Yeah. Right. For us, you know, we all have difficult people in our churches, and they're the people we try to keep at arm's length. Mm-hmm. And Jesus is here offering his 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 life and <laughs> right. for the sake right. of people who are going to betray and disown and and desert him. <laughs> right. Wow. It's yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's 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 awesome. Yeah, it is. So, well, thanks everybody. Thanks, Christy. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week, and in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen, listen for, for the, the word. word.